Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. And now, Kevin Ray. And happy summer. This is Mark Griffith with the Housing Hour. Filling in for the very verbal Kevin Ray, who cannot be here today, but we'll continue on without him. And to my right in the studio, guest co-host again, my buddy, Richard Swan. Happy to be here, and what a better day to talk about boating than a day when we may need a boat to get out of the parking lot. (laughs) It's, It's raining right now at the studio where we are, but we are recording during the week, so it may hopefully be sunny when you're out there listening on your boat. But today we have a great show, but before we get to that show... Let me make sure you know how to plug in with The Housing Hour. Go to our website, thehousinghour.com. That's our treasure trove of information. We have all of our past shows and past topics right there in a good searchable format. So check that out for us. Also, plug in socially with us on the social media. We got the platforms covered. We've even got a great social media team behind us. Facebook slash The Housing Hour. Twitter at the housing hour so check that out we're uh, we're all over the place so we have a lot of fun doing that this show is presented by mortgage investors group and so with that we have a special guest because it is summer and when you're summer you're outdoors when you're outdoors you're in the water you're in boating you're in hunting you're doing a lot of different fun things and our guest today richard i'm gonna let you just set that up and introduce them because he's your buddy. He, he is, and I've known Ed in his official capacity with TWRA for many years. He is the executive director of the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency in Tennessee, TWRA. He's a great guy. He's come up through the ranks. He is also a University of Tennessee graduate. We can't leave that out. Oh, because that's good. That my other hat is the Alumni Association, so always glad to have a Tennessee grad on the line. And he is just a wonderful person and really cares about the state of Tennessee. And Ed Carter, thank you for joining us. That introduction, I think, speaks to everything. So how are you doing, sir? Well, if I can live up to that introduction, I'll be doing well. (laughs) But but thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on. And uh, Richard has been doing shows with us on boating safety because he is a part of the United States Auxiliary Coast Guard? Coast Guard Auxiliary. Coast Guard Auxiliary. I never get that right. But anyway, (laughs) maybe one year I will. But he's always come to us and he's talked about boating safety and all those things. And we're going to get to boating safety later in the the show. But Ed, you have a – I look at your resume and it's a vast, vast list of your accomplishments and presidencies and past presidencies of organization – uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, how you got involved in all this, your passion. How did this all start? Oh, gosh, I guess it was from birth almost. I grew up in a family that loved the outdoors, and especially my dad and I who hunted and fished from the time earliest I can remember. And so I grew up in the eastern part of the state in, in Hawkins County and Blunt County, so somewhere all up and around that area is where I call my roots. Uh, went to work first down in West Tennessee and then eventually back to Middle Tennessee. So I've had that opportunity to spread my my view of Tennessee to the, you know, the we call it the, the, 
the three grand divisions of Tennessee, and if you might remember at one time, the, the welcome sign said, welcome to the three states of Tennessee. And <laughs> I've come to find out that that's really true from geography, philosophy, and on and on. But anyway, I grew up in that environment. Knew what I wanted to do early on, and even in high school, I was talking about how someday I'd like to go into this line of work. And as you said, went to the University of Tennessee, got my degree in forestry and wildlife, and then moved into the, at that time the Game and Fish Commission before it was reorganized back in 1974, and, and uh, have been with them ever since. So I hope nobody's doing the math on that and figuring out how old I am. But in any case. It's been a great career. I'd start over again tomorrow if I had that chance. That works out to be 39 years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started straight out of grade school. I didn't yeah. <laughs> well, that that is mighty impressive, Richard. He he is an impressive guy. And more fundamentally, and you can hear it in his talk, he is a down-to-earth guy. I mean, he's not somebody in an ivory tower, even though he runs one of the largest yeah. law enforcement agencies in the state. He is a down-to-earth guy. He's working with probably, you know, all the counties in Tennessee, probably close to 150 to 200 different law enforcement agencies in the counties and cities and municipalities. So that's a lot to coordinate, and that's a lot to to administer. And he does a great job doing it. Yeah, tell us, Ed, how do, how is your relationship with the other agencies? Um, and and you, you've been in it for a while. How has that changed or evolved over the course of the years with all the different type of law enforcement agencies and whatnot? Well, you know, obviously, the, in terms of the boating side of things, it it's, relates primarily to those jurisdictions and in, in local areas that that have some kind of waterways and in Tennessee we're blessed with a lot of those of course but, but anyway I guess back to the point more uh, throughout the state our, we have officers in every county of course and we have people who have statewide responsibility that go wherever they're called and then we have investigators so they continually work with the folks that they work with every day so on the county or city level they know each other on a personal level have interoperability with our radio system and work together especially on on disaster times like snowstorms and floods and and any of those kind of things train derailments where extra people are needed or a lot of times where we get our folks called in that they ordinarily wouldn't be is in those areas where the usually the local police force aren't out equipped with boats or four-wheelers or four-wheel drive trucks and so our folks will come in to help augment that when they can and and then of course that there's reciprocity from the other law enforcement officers and across the state who come in to help us when we need help and we try to stay in our own lanes as much as we can to make sure that that we're doing what the the people who buy hunting and fishing licenses and boat registrations want us to do and but at the same time know that we have other responsibilities and because on any one day on any one particular lake it may become a small city uh, i remember back to on the alan jackson concerts when he would have his own center hill lake and we would have five thousand boats in one area of the lake at that one time, which is turns out to be pretty much like a police force on a small lake. But in any case, we work really well together. We go through pretty much the same training. Our guys go to the law enforcement academy. They make friends there with those folks. And then we have our own training after that that lasts about a year and a half. So 
all of that goes together eventually just to, to not be too redundant. That there's, there's a lot of reciprocity that goes across, but we try to still concentrate on those things that we're charged with specific responsibilities. And and I noticed several years ago there was a an accident on Fort Loudon Lake, um, and, and I was driving by when the emergency vehicles showed up, but the first emergency vehicles that showed up were TWRA people with boats. Is that typical? Are you all first responders when it comes to accidents on the water? Yeah, actually, we're charged by state law. We're we're the only. It, it actually says in the law we're the sole agency responsible for boating safety on either the state or local level. And when other officers uh, become involved in boating safety, we actually draw up agreements with the local area so that we're all using the same kind of administrative procedures and, and so each knows what is expected of the other and the, that we get work together in that way but on the local responders yeah when there's a, a boating accident we're charged by law to be, to investigate that accident and so if if i'm on the waterway on a boat and i call 911 do they automatically contact you or do they patch me through to you how does that work if i'm on the water and you're involved the 911 operators generally go first to their local jurisdictions, and then that's usually where it crosses over. As sometimes we get to call directly from the 911 center, either through our dispatchers. They, again, they're, they're all kind of plugged in together. So if the 911 dispatcher calls our dispatcher, it'll go straight to our people. Otherwise, maybe a, a local officer who contacts one of our people by radio or, or by telephone and, and goes from there. This depends on the circumstances. Well, and having been involved in, in boating safety and boating exercises for years, I'm also going to say that, that that's one of the reasons for boaters that are out on the water to carry additional safety gear with them, to carry additional information with them so that they can be kind of a on-the-scene person. And because it's important for other boaters to maybe be there to pull somebody out of the water if they had to leave their boat, before other agencies might be able to get there that are official government agencies. Oh, that's absolutely true. And then, as you well know, folks are spread out so much. I'm talking about our personnel and, and local jurisdictions as well are spread out pretty far. And on the lakes, it's it's even more noticeable. So at any one time, there may be a significant waiting time between the time an accident happens until somebody on the water actually gets there. One, one reason, and it's obviously if you're on one end of a reservoir and, and somebody else is on the other, it just takes a while by water to get there. So. Excellent. So we have Ed Carter on the line with us from the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency, and we're going to continue on the other side of this break. Stay with us because we've got some interesting things to go over with Ed. We'll be right back after these messages. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And we're back in talking summertime in East Tennessee and across the great state, the three grand regions, as Ed Carter, our guest, talked about earlier today. Ed Carter, Executive Director of the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency, is in our midst. He's president of the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agency. 
and he's past presidents of a lot of things. Ed, you've been a busy man for the, most of your life, it looks like. But there is one on here I need to ask you about. It <laughs> says, past member, executive board of the Canadian Safe Boating Council. How did they find an <laughs> East Tennessee boy to do that? <laughs> well, that is a long story, but I'll give you the short version. <laughs> <laughs> when... Each state has a, a person who's designated as a boating law administrator by the U.S. Coast Guard. And I, when I was in that role, I was the boating law administrator for Tennessee and became president of the National Association of State Boating Law Administrators. So in that role, I got to work a lot with the other organizations like the Coast Guard Auxiliary, U.S. Power Squadrons. But there was also a, a safe boating council in the United States, and the safe boating council had a, a board, which I was a member of, and then we linked very closely to the Canadian side of that same equation. And so the Canadian Safe Boating Council asked me if I would be on their board, and and I said, sure. And so that went on for about five years, I guess, back and forth. And I learned to speak a little Canadian and and, and understood some of that language. And it led to some some really interesting things. But if I can go off to the side just for a second, sure. I was sitting in my office one day, and I get a call from and this and one of the folks in the office said, "Hey, Ed, there's a guy from from Rome wants to speak to you for a second. I'm thinking we work closely with Georgia all the time, so I'm thinking <laughs> Rome, Georgia. <laughs> and I could tell from his accent he was either from way north Georgia or somewhere else. <laughs> and, anyway, it turns out he's he's calling from Italy, and he said we understand some of the things going on in the United States and some of the things that are happening in Tennessee." Could you come over and, and be a part of our life-saving society meetings we're going to have in Genoa? And so they were footing the bill for all that, so it didn't cost anything from our agency except my time. So I went to Italy six times over my career to to be a part of that. Met some really interesting people. We, we, it, they were trying to develop some of the boating things that we have here in the United States from all the way from navigation aids to education and under the influence, which I felt I thought that was kind of interesting to go to a country known for wine production and talk about boating under the influence, but we did that. <laughs> well, it's probably we also appropriate. Got to go. We went with the Canadian folks to get back to that, and and uh, we actually signed a memorandum of, of agreement on how about five different countries would organize their boating things to work together. And we actually, we went to the house that Columbus lived in when he was in Genoa, and saw his record books and all those kind of things and we signed that little document. So that was a long story to tell you that we interact with a lot of other agencies and organizations, but that's how I got to be on the part of the Canadian side. Well, uh, Richard and I were wondering if you got one of the Mountie red jackets and the Smokey Bear hat. <laughs> no, but I had my picture taken with them. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm sure Canadian bacon was a side deal that was available. So, but, uh, that's... Eggs, <laughs> Eggs Benedict were everywhere. Oh, I bet. I bet. So let's talk, Richard, about education in, in the process. Uh, you've been, you know, with the Coast Guard or Auxiliary. Let's talk about that a little bit. Education is very important. And in recent years we passed where you have to have an education course in order to operate a boat on uh, waterways of the state of tennessee if you were born after january 1st 1989 and that was probably a good move it ran into a lot of problems probably in the legislature because why do i need a, a license to boat i've been boating my entire life so they kind of grandfathered in anybody that you know was over a certain age but what a lot of people don't realize is boating laws are different. Boating 
information is different. There aren't really traffic signals out there on the waterways. And I've been very impressed with um, the people from TWRA that I've met who have now taken over the boating education parameters within the state of Tennessee since licensing came into being. And, Ed, what I've seen from your people is they're very, you know, down to earth. They're going to give you, here's the law, but here's kind of the the way that it works. And one of the things I was impressed with is they were talking about if you're encountered by a TWRA agency, they are used to seeing people with guns. That's part of their daily routine is they encounter hunters, they encounter other people that are in the wildlife, and they're used to seeing people with guns. But they said other local law enforcement, they approach that differently because they're not used to seeing people with guns. And so they talked about how to interact and how to, um, if somebody encounters you, how to leave your gun where it is. Don't go near it. Don't touch it. Don't try to say, hey, let me put this up. Because then that's going to set a lot of other law enforcement agencies on edge because they're not used to dealing with that. And I just found that down-to-earth kind of approach very reassuring and at the same time very engaging from your officers. You know, that there is a difference there, obviously. Our number one thing, we know when people go boating, they're there for the most part, to have fun. There there are some people that do it commercially and on and on, but the number one reason people go to, to the lake or the river is to have fun. And we want to make sure that we facilitate that and, and don't get in the way. But at the same time, there's a there's a line there where people interact other people's safety or other people's enjoyment, and that's sometimes a hard line to walk, but that's essentially our philosophy is to make it fun where you can, but keep people within a, a certain parameter that, that they don't endanger themselves or others. And, as far as the, the firearms go, it, it is a little different in that we're so used to working with people in the field, so when it spills over into a, a boat, it's not that much different for us, especially from waterfowl hunters and all those kind of people who always have firearms in their boats. But that's changed a little bit, obviously, over the last few years as more and more people have carry permits and and. So, so that that's changed a little bit in, in terms of how it's approached by lots of folks, but there's still an officer safety thing that we have to look out for, and and that each person has to take on their own and assess each situation as they come to. But I, I, we always fall back to, hey, you're here to have fun. We want to help you do that. And tell us a little bit about the educational program. For, I mean, because you guys ha- handle everything from the hunting to you know the fishing the the boating but how does how do you go about um the safety programs what's the highlight of the safety program as far as hunting goes and safe practice in hunting um in tennessee how, can you explain a little bit of that well there's a very similar component to education on the hunting hunting side which is the hunter education program as there is on the boating side and both are mandatory for people who participate as Richard said based on born after dates so that they were grandfathered in eventually uh, but anyway on the hunter safety side folks who are going to hunt uh, after they're 10 years old they would need to take a hunter education course and that course is based on some national standards and and then those those standards are applied as quickly as you can in in today's environment people are are very prone not to want to sit in classrooms so there's a lot of stuff that can be done online and so forth but anyway it's to bring people up to the standards in terms of things that they might not think about and richard said 
earlier that on the boating side, a lot of folks say, I've been boating all my life. Why do I need to know this? Then they get into the parts about navigation aids and why they're there and what they mean and what rules of the road mean and who, uh, what commercial traffic has the right of way and, and what you need to look out for and, and weather conditions and on and on. And very similar on the hunting edu- on the hunter side as well from what the requirements would be, not only from the whatever elements you might be in from the very cold to the very warm. And then uh, there's also the, the component that we throw in about working with landowners and, and essentially etiquette and what that would be like for, for other hunters and encountering them. But if we go into firearm safety in terms of storage and carriage, what the capability of any particular firearm is and how it would be used and what it's best used for and, and then Usually zone in on if if you're going to do this, you need to practice, and here are the safest places to practice. And, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, safety on the water, it seems to me, Ed and, and Richard both, when, when I hear something coming in the press, it's always about a boating accident, but I, don't, I never hear about hunting accidents. Are they lower in accidents, or are they just not reported? Do you have an opinion? Yes, they're, the number, actual numbers are lower on the hunter education side. Hunter safety has been around as a requirement much longer in, in Tennessee and in the nation as a whole as boating safety has. So we're still catching up a little bit on the boating side, but, but then there's sheer numbers. About several years ago, which about 43% of all Tennesseans were in a boat at one time in a year. So the numbers of people that would be on the water are significantly higher than those who would be hunting. So th- there's some of that involved as well. But, but the boating side, in terms of fatalities and accidents, is higher than it is on the hunting side. Right. Okay. And, um, yeah, so that's real important. We got, uh, we're, gonna, we're coming up against a, a hard break, and we're going to talk about wildlife protection and management next. Um, I think we want to know a little bit more about that. Um, but, uh, Ed, uh, you've really, you're really uh, unwrapping a lot for us and discussing that. We really appreciate it. Hang on. We're going to have another segment coming up. This is the Housing Hour with Richard Swan, Mark Griffith. We'll be right back. Catfish are jumping, that paddle wheel bumping, black water keep rolling on fast, just the same. Oh, black water keep on rolling, Mississippi moon, won't you keep on shining on Oh, black water. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And we're back into the Housing Hour, presented by Mortgage Investors Group. I'm Mark Griffith. I'm here with Richard Swan, guest co-host, and helping us out today, and responsible for this incredible interview with Ed Carter on the phone with us, Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency, TWRA. You've seen them out there on the waterway. You've seen them all over the place. Um, they do a great service for our communities, I'm telling you, and for the great state of Tennessee. So we really appreciate everything that they do. Ed, let's talk a little bit about wild uh, wildlife protection and management, those types of things. You know, talk about sustainability and, and those types of things. How do your, How's your focus on... Uh, as far as the agency goes in those types of uh, topics? In reality, that's probably what we're better known for than we are boating safety. Although right. I, I like to think that we're fairly well engaged on both. But on the on the wildlife side, we have responsibility for 
all wildlife in the state, whether it's anything that's hunted for or not. We, so we have from salamanders all the way up, and and it's a pretty diverse state to work in. As a matter of fact, Tennessee is listed as the most diverse inland state in the nation. And some of our waterways are known as some of the older in the state. And the Duck River that flows through Middle Tennessee is the most, according to several different sources, one of the top three biologically diverse rivers in the world. So we have a lot of things to to look after. And so we have people who kind of specialize in each of those areas. We have those folks who are on the aquatic side, and then that's broken down even further from from fish to mussels to to crayfish to salamanders and on and on. To, on that side and on the, on the larger side, you know, the deer, the bear, the elk, all the larger animals that you probably think more of when you're looking at those. Then we have the section that that deals primarily with non-game animals and, and endangered species. And we have a host of those that, that we work with every day. And while, while I'm thinking about that, I would just say that one of the things that's so important to us is the people who buy hunting and fishing licenses and buy that register their boats. That's where our funding comes from. We're, we're not a general fund agency that receives general fund tax money from the state. So it's really important for us to, to have that base, and we we try to make sure that th- those people that are doing that have a say-so in terms of how the wildlife management that we utilize in our programs is structured. And the first and foremost comes the welfare of the wildlife. So everything that we do, we do a number of census programs across the state that the public probably never sees. But the keeping population numbers and knowing what those are and the dealing with different invasive species, and right now we're dealing – every day with chronic wasting disease which has occurred down in three counties in western Tennessee that is fatally is is an always fatal disease to deer. So we're trying to do our best to maintain the that parameter that it doesn't spread throughout the state and we were the twenty sixth state to become a C W D positive. So all of those things together we we have any number of specialists in those areas that bring forth recommendations to our commission. And our commission is made up of 13 people who are appointed by the speakers of the House and the, and the Senate and then nine by the governor. And they are essentially the sounding board for those people in their districts to respond and and get information to so that once we get the biological information together, then that opens up the door to, well, this is what this group of people would like to see. Does it fit within the biological parameters of what would still be safe in terms of population numbers for that percentage of animals? So that was a long-winded answer to say that (laughs) there are a lot of different people that look at a lot of different areas, and the commission helps us set those parameters. Well, and, and those are important, and I didn't realize that you all didn't really receive state funding other than through licensing and other things, and I would think that, you know, that would be, you know, important to include funding in the budget, but um, I know that they're also trying to keep the budget as tight as they can, and we have a very positive budget in the state of Tennessee uh, compared to other states, but... And it's, it's, it's such a vast ecosystem. Uh, one of the questions I have for you, Ed, is Tennessee and some of the waterways unique uh, versus other parts of the country? Because you, you remember back in the 70s, we had the snail darter where this, you know, the species of fish, you know, is, is only in this one waterway. 
up in Upper East Tennessee, you have things that nobody's ever heard of is horny heads. I used to go fishing as a kid in Upper East on the Nullichucky River, horny head fishing. Are we unique to having these unusual species? There are several species found in Tennessee that are found nowhere else in the world. And those are the ones that we work closely with on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as to whether or not it's listed as a federally endangered animal or one that's just federally, I mean, one that's just endangered or in need of management here in Tennessee. So we do have a number of those, and, and they're way, way more on the aquatic side than there are on the on the terrestrial side. The, the mussel population in Tennessee, the freshwater mussels, we have some of the most diverse and most unique anywhere to be found in, in, the, in the world. And we have now the Cumberland River Aquatic Center that we run up near Gallatin, Tennessee, just north of Nashville. And it's specifically for mussels and other endangered fish. The, the sturgeon that we've been releasing for a number of years now, for about the last 10 years, and they've made their way all the way up to to Upper East Tennessee now through the different lock system and on and on. But those those were raised there along with some down in the aquarium down in Chattanooga. So we're doing that side of things. We just one of our habitat guys and as a part of the dive team was they found a, a mussel that had thought to have been extinct for a number of years in the Duck River. They t- took, I think there was like four or five of them that they found, took them to the Cumberland River Aquatic Center, and last year we released some 5,000 back into the wild. They were awesome. able to propagate back. So it's a pretty interesting line of work. Well, and while we're on that subject of mussels, do we still have a pearl uh that quantity or pearl gathering from any Tennessee rivers because that used to be a huge. You're talking about industry. commercial harvest. Yeah, commercial harvest of of Tennessee uh, pearl, freshwater pearls. It still occurs, but primarily the mussel harvest that was there was for the cultured pearl business, and the the shells were actually used more than actually finding the pearls themselves, and the shells would be shipped to Japan or China, and then little plugs out of those shells would be implanted into oysters and then those would become the cultured pearls and we were one of the largest exporters in the United States of that so that has really really slowed down uh, uh, there's been a couple of innovations in in the cultured pearl business which is primarily taking that that need away so there is still some. There are still obviously mussels that produce pearls here. They're nowhere near as valuable in terms of the, of the retail side as cultured pearls are. But in any case, it still goes on, but not to the extent that it was, say, 15, 20 years ago. And I would point everybody, our, our listeners, to, at the McClung Museum in the basement, the lower level, there was a Civil War um, um, display. But in the back corner, they have a Tennessee mussel display. That is quite extensive. So if you go down there, I mean, they go back from millions of years and they bring it forward to, to, to today. So quite interesting what you're discussing. And what about, you know, when I was a kid in West Knoxville growing up in the 70s, I used to play on the Gettys View Farm, which is the Gettys Country Club right out there now where people live. And in the streams in there, we used to catch salamanders all the time. I went to that creek that would run around there. I couldn't find one salamander are they endangered, or what's happened with those guys? Overall, they're not endangered. There oh, are species good. that are, but uh, there's a fungus that's spreading nationwide, the chytrid fungus, and it, it causes the salamanders. They 
I know all the biological folks are going to yell at me for saying it this way, but they kind of breathe through their skin. And in, and in doing that with some, the ones that do, like frogs and others, you get the same fungus. It hardens that to the point that they really have trouble with transportation and I can't even talk this morning. They have trouble breathing. Right. <laughs> and and the, and it's it's killing some of those. There's a similar fungus for snakes, and that's happening in some of those as well. But overall, they're not endangered. Uh, you may have trouble finding them in some areas, and then we also have trouble with invasive species where folks have brought different mm-hmm. kinds of pets in like that and turned them loose and and they're out competing the local ones well that's that's a good one we're coming up to the end of the end of the segment but um i would on the other side of the break before we start talking specifically about boating i would like to to talk about invasive species that have been let loose and how you have to deal with that because i and i mean i've i've heard that you know, there's alligators out there, you know, in the waterways and some things like that. I don't know if this not, is not true. supposed to be around here unless yeah. he's got a beer in his hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and Ed, you, Ed, you may not know this. You haven't met Mark, but Mark is one of those species that's not found anywhere else other than East Tennessee. I, I am unique and I should be on the uh, federal uh, endangered <laughs> list, especially after one of these shows. But, uh, but when we come back from the break, I know that um, we want to continue talking uh, about that but uh, i do want to explore some of the things that you run into and um uh, so we'll we'll do that Uh, check us out share the show on on facebook and and twitter you can find our podcast here on the housinghour.com so after this break we'll be right back with ed carter on the housing hour Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And we're back in talking with Ed Carter from the Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency. And off air, Ed, we were talking just between ourselves and we were wondering, what's the strangest thing that you've ever come across in your professional career as a Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agent? Well, I'd almost have to have a list. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I just thought one, but we we were talking. I bet you there's a lot of those uh, situations. Give us give us your top one or two. Well, I'll, I'll stick with boating just for a second. We, okay. We were just ordinarily we were working on a lake near Nashville here, and we saw something on the water. <laughs> And it was it looked like a boat, and it was actually making way down through there, so we said, well, it's under power, so we went over there, and there was like as I remember six or seven people on on what would loosely be called a boat, and it it was kind of floating. The people were sitting on a plywood base, and water was up to their waist, and they had two before's nailed on the corner all the way around, and then he had railing around that, and we we're going. Oh boy, this is going to be a good one. So we started talking to the folks. They had all their life jackets. They had everything they needed, including a stereo system at the time wired up on one of the four, the, the four two by fours on the corner, with a car battery wired on the other, running this whole system and having just a grand time. And we thought, 
Well, they should have registered it. And we look on the two before, and there's their TN numbers. <laughs> so it was a it was a little weird, but uh, so then, that's that's hilarious. So you're telling me that you guys have no standards for a structure of craft. <laughs> no, actually, there are, but you can have a homemade craft you can just build it yourself you have to submit i think you have to submit the designs and you have to submit the oh, wow. um engineering okay and have it rated and everything doesn't but, sound um, like these boys had that well done. no I, I doubt they did but you got to give them their <laughs> their ingenuity and the fact that they were willing to get other people that were willing to go on board the thing <laughs> i guess they uh, figured they could put on their life jacket and, and make it to shore at any point in time but uh well, you know, to that point, not to stray too far off, but I got a call one day to, what do I need to do? I'm building my own boat. And so anyway, I went to meet this person, and, and when I got there, they had the, a very heavy French accent. And the fellow was out in his backyard, and he had steel. And he would lay down a piece of cardboard on this steel, cut it out, and then weld it. onto. And he made a beautiful, about a 38-foot sailboat by the time it was all completed. And he... The short story is he had come here from France because he wanted to open a vineyard. He and his grandfather had thought this would be the place to do it. And while he was here, while the grapes were growing, he would sail around the world in this homemade boat. So he actually launched it in downtown Nashville once it was eventually done. And and I got a call somewhere around a year later from his wife, and he was he was lost at sea somewhere in a storm. But in any case, I thought that was such an odd combination of events to happen here in Tennessee. <laughs> it's very strange. Um, well, let's talk about, let's focus this last section of the, the show on boating safety, since that's like the number one. We're coming up on the main part of summer, 4th of July. This is when everybody's out on the waterway, at least a lot of people in Tennessee. What are the some of the um, the top things, Ed, that you would talk to everybody listening about boating safety and how you can keep you and your family safe on the water? You know, some of them are just common sense, but sometimes, and I'll put myself in there, sometimes they, you forget about those common sense decisions when you're out just to have such a grand time. But, you, you know, there's no designated lanes on the water. So having a, a person to kind of act as a lookout in a, in a serious way to help the operator watch for boats, which could literally come from 360 degrees, is just an enormous help. And we we noted, I guess it was last year, that almost half of the people that died in the fatalities, and there were 24 fatalities last year, the highest we've had in a number of years, but almost half of those were passengers as opposed to operators. So it's it's important that everybody knows their place in the boat and they have a designated place to be. We we've we've talked for years about you know boating under the influence. And I won't dwell a lot on that other than you know having a designated operator is just an essential thing to do. And I can go into a lot of lists about why alcohol in the water actually has more effect on a person than it does on land. I'm not necessarily talking about drinking and driving a vehicle, but just the vibration, the noise, the sun, all those things actually enhances that alcoholic effect on the water. And then when you get into low visibility times, you know, early morning, late evening, and for most people it's going to be late evening, Those, all of those conditions become more pronounced, and it's harder to see another boat. Uh, 
some folks forget to turn their running lights on, and some people don't have on their stern light, the big white one, because sometimes they feel like it blinds them when they're running at night. So visibility is a, is a tough thing, and that's where that operator comes back into play again. But uh, the equipment that's on board the boat isn't always necessarily mandated to be used for, for instance, life jackets. And we've, we've kind of beat that to death over the years, and we started a wear it campaign in 2008 to try to make sure that people knew about the new types of life jackets that are out that are inflatable, and they're they're not hot, and they're comfortable, and they can be worn so much easier than the others and actually have more flotation. But Having those available to people, having if wearing them, of course, is the, is the best thing to do. And kids, of course, under 13 have to. But in any case, having those there. And then it, as we come into the 4th of July, so many, many municipalities, local people, even just private folks on the dock will have some type of fireworks displayed. And obviously that's going to take place at night. And then when it's over, everybody wants to leave all at one time and get there quickly. And we really try to to work that as best we can, but we can't be everywhere. So there's a lot of personal responsibility that a person has to take to say, I need to slow down. I need to get where I'm going carefully. I need to watch out for other boats. So the last thing I would throw in is if you haven't been out yet, usually Memorial Day is more like the beginning of the the summer season, even though we're coming up on the actual solace day that hits to be summer. But checking your equipment that... It, if the boat's been sitting for a while or you just haven't used it since last year, vibration is so much more pronounced on the water than it is anywhere else from the wave action and the constant rocking back and forth that the electrical wires rub against other things until they wear through the sheath and then they become a, a electrical hazard or they just don't work, one of the two. Same thing happens for fuel systems. Just If you can take the time, an hour inspection when it's sitting on a trailer or sitting in a marina is such a time saver and a, and a safety, uh, one of the top safety things you can do before you actually get on the water. And, you know, uh, Richard, you being, you know, always a big proponent of safety, what what, what would you add to that? What would you add to this uh, discussion? I mean, everything Ed said is, is right on the money. Uh, one thing that I would add to how he, he closed that out was take spare parts with you. Um, my boat chews up alternator belts. So I always have additional alternator belts. I clip them out of the way because with my motor, you've got to take the motor mounts out to actually get the new belt on. So I go ahead and put two or three on inside those motor mounts, and then I've got them available just to pull up and, and tighten the new belt if I have a problem on the water. But keep spare parts. If you know your boat has an issue with something, keep a toolkit on board. You may not have the slightest idea of how to fix it, but I'll guarantee you, you'll find somebody on the water or at a marina that does if you've got the parts and you've got the uh, tools to be able to at least, you know, screwdriver wrenches, things like that, that you can at least work on the boat. Somebody will know how to fix it. Somebody will know what to do to, to get you back out and on the water. And, and Ed, I love your approach about we want people to have fun out there. I have seen that from all of your officers, that that is, is what they are trying to promote. That is what they are talking about. And, and that comes from an organization from the top down. So I appreciate your tenure with TWRA. I appreciate your uh, continuing to be in that role. And I know that that comes as a philosophy from the top down. And in listening to you, talking with you, it's obvious 
that you have that philosophy and you want people to be safe out there. Um, I quote and talk a lot of time with people on Facebook that I see a post and somebody posted something of a guy that's coming into doc Russell Beatty, who um, most people at MIG know, and they were talking about him coming into the doc and how serious he looked. And I got on there and I commented and I said, leave the guy alone. He's captain of that boat. He's doing his job. He's making sure everybody else is safe. Let him do his job. And that's what we need out on the water is is people to understand that it can be, if not done safely, it can be a dangerous thing. So I appreciate your efforts in that regard as well, Ed. Well, thank you, Richard. And I would just add to that, having done it a few times myself, uh, when you spend 10 to 12 hours on the water in a work situation, it is really fatiguing. And some of the, sometimes we need to take that into account, too. Uh, and I guess one other last, if I got just a second here, sure. to talk one other little safety thing is people need to be really aware of their oh. their boat's propellers. They, they're just, you know, they're spinning pieces of steel that obviously push the boat through the water, but they, they're just unforgiving if they come in contact with a person. So if you're skiing, if you're swimming or whatever, make sure that everybody's back in the boat before you start that engine. And that's a great amen. Great tip. Ed, thank you very much for uh, being on with us. We really appreciate it. That's the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know, so come here to find out. Also, check us out at thehousinghour.com. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.